Well, in Revelation 1.19, if you remember back to that very critical verse, the resurrected, glorified Lord Jesus Christ, who appeared to the Apostle John while he was in, ex in exile for his faith on the Isle of Patmos, the Lord gave him a three-point outline for the book of Revelation. He told John to take up his pen and, first of all, to write those things which he had seen, and that was, of course, the chapter 1 vision of the glorified Christ while he stood in the midst of seven golden candlesticks. Secondly, John was to write the things which are, and since John was the last living apostle and he was living during the time of the church age, this referred to the Lord's seven church letters of chapters 2 and 3, which prophetically give to us the seven stages of church history. And then, third, John was to write the things which shall be, shall be hereafter, and those hereafter things have reference to the events of history future, which will take place following the conclusion of the church age. In this lesson, then, we're not only going to conclude our look at the seven Revelation church letters and consider the final stage of church history, which is that stage of Laodicea. But we're also going to conclude the second part of our general outline for the book of Revelation, which I had given you somewhere in your notes earlier this year. So even though it might look like we haven't you know, gotten very far in this year's study, having just concluded three chapters out of 22, Yet, if we look at it as having completed two-thirds of our general outline, then we have gotten pretty far. So I'd rather look at it that way. We have covered the person of Christ, chapter 1, and we have covered the possession of Christ, chapter 2. And I hope you don't regret having learned so much about church history. I certainly haven't regretted it. Well, in the previous lesson, last week's lesson, we had begun our look at this letter to the church of the Laodiceans. This final Revelation church letter was written to a church located in a very wealthy city. We talked about that, a city which prided itself not only on its large and prosperous banks, but on its manufacture of a very unique, fine, raven black, what? Wool. And also on its famous ISAV. Laodicea was also a free city meaning that she was self-governing. She had no Roman garrison, no Roman military stationed in the city um, because she could be trusted to be obedient to Rome. Laodicea, in other words, was an independent city. She was a self-sufficient city. Even to the point of having rebuilt herself, Remember when the city was totally destroyed in 62 A.D. by an earthquake, the citizens very proudly denied any help from Rome and dug into their own pockets and rebuilt their city. Well, much like the city in which she was founded, the church of the Laodiceans was also self-governing. In fact, because the Lord Jesus Christ in this letter is seen standing on the outside, of this church in, in verse 20, we could say that she was a free church. There is no such thing, but we could say that. The city was a free city. She was basically a free church because who ruled instead of Christ? The people ruled, and that's exactly what Laodicea means, people rule. She was proud of her independence, and just like the citizens of, of the city had desired no help from imperial Rome to rebuild their city, the church desired no assistance from the Lord Jesus Christ 
to build her church, their church. And that's exactly what Laodicea was. It was the people's church. It was the church of the Laodiceans. It was not the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Prophetically, oops, you can just leave that. It's okay. Prophetically, this last church symbolizes the final stage of church history, which is the stage that we are in today. I do believe the stage of apostasy. This is the, of course, it's not full-blown apostasy. That won't come until after the church is raptured in the tribulation. But we are certainly in a day when many, many apostate churches dominate Christendom. This is the church which had fallen away not only from her love of Christ, but she had fallen away from her biblical doctrine of Christ and her duty to communicate Christ to a lost and dying world. But she had even worse, she had even fallen from knowing Christ. She didn't even have a personal relationship with him. She thought she was rich and in need of nothing, but according to the Lord's own assessment, and remember who he is? Who is he? As he told them in this letter, he is the Amen. Amen, that's how they say it in Hebrew. He's the Amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of the creation of God. So his estimation is the true one. And according to his estimation of this church and this stage in church history, the members of the Laodicean church were wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, as we continue to consider the Lord's words to this seventh church, under the fourth section of our outline. Last week we looked at the details about the city, the details about the church, and the description of Christ. Today we're going to look at part four, declaration from Christ. This is where we looked, uh, left off, and we're going to t- discuss his accusation, his advice to them, his award, and his appeal. What is missing in this outline compared to the other ones? Right. He has not one word of approval to say to this church. So there is no section called his approval. Well, let's review by reading the whole letter, and then we'll talk about verses 15 to 17 and look at his accusation. But I want to read the whole, the whole letter at this point. So if you'd look with me at verse 14, where Jesus says, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am sat down, set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. The Lord accused the members of the Laodicean church of two things. 
in verses 15 to 17, his accusation. He accused them, first of all, of being lukewarm in verses 15 and 16. And he accused them of being self-deceived in verse 17. Now, his first assessment of their spiritual condition is that they were neither what or what. They were neither cold nor hot, but they were instead lukewarm. What he was doing here was, as if you didn't know, he was comparing the church to a drink, which is nauseate, you know, that nauseating, insipid, lukewarm kind of nothingness. Remember last week I said I either like hot, hot coffee or a cold, cold Coca-Cola. I actually don't drink Coca-Cola. I drink Dr. Pepper, but I like it cold. But, you know, if you give somebody warm or cool coffee, it's kind of nauseating. Or if you give them a warm Coke, that's even worse, I think. (laughs) Well, he was using this illustration to describe the tepid disgust this church gave to him. These are pretty strong words, Uh, especially when he says, you know, that he would spew them out of his mouth. It just didn't settle well with him. It made him want to, to vomit. That's actually what the word spew in verse 16 literally means in the Greek. It made him want to vomit them out of his mouth. Now, a number of respectable Bible commentators have said, have claimed that this letter that we just read, the letter to the church of the Laodiceans, was written to lukewarm Christians. They were saying that these were Christians, okay, that they were just lukewarm. And these are respectable men, and I, you know, I'm not going to criticize what they say. And a lot, a lot of people say that. But I personally have a problem with the Lord ever saying that he would vomit or spit out anyone who was truly his child. I gave you some reasons why I believe this is not, these aren't Christians, that this is the apostate church last week. One of them is that it's the church of the Laodiceans, first time he ever used that expression. But I really have a problem with the Lord saying he would vomit out Christians. Because this would seem to me to very strongly contradict what he had said in John 6:37, where he said, All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. You know, Christ did not die on the cross go through that shameful, painful death on the cross in order to redeem us so that he could then spit us out if we cooled down in our walk with him or in our zeal for him. So I disagree with those that say that this was written to Christians. Laodicea was a church which had a form of godliness but denied the power thereof. Paul in 2 Timothy 3.5 said that there would be many who would be characterized in this way in the last days. He warned Christians that from such people as these Laodiceans, true believers were to turn away from. We, were to turn, we are to turn away from people like this lukewarm type people. A lukewarm type of church which claims to represent the Lord Jesus Christ never sees people getting saved. 
It doesn't see people coming from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, primarily because they're not preaching the gospel. It deceives people into thinking that they're already Christians just because they, they're church members, just because they come and get putrefied every week, <laughs> or because they've been baptized, or because they've been catechized, or because they, their parents and their grandparents um, claim to be Christians and, and their parents or their grandparents are buried out in the church cemetery. So this makes them a Christian. They're self-deceived. These churches are not seeing souls saved or lives changed because they don't have the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're more interested in social action than they are in gospel action or in witnessing or in proclaiming the born-again message. So many churches are ashamed to even use those words, born again. I'm not ashamed of them. If Christ wasn't ashamed to use them, why should we be? They're more interested in reformation than they are in transformation. And they're more interested in planning than they are in praying. So they're sickening to the Lord. They make him vomit. Now, there are three different basic types of spiritual conditions. So examine yourself and see which one you are. There are those who are cold. There are those who are hot. And the Greek word is zestos. And then there are those who are lukewarm. Now, the person who is cold is the individual who completely rejects the things of Christ and the Bible. He doesn't respond in the least degree to the gospel message when he hears it. Now, he isn't a hypocrite, okay? He's not a hypocrite. He isn't saying that he believes when he doesn't. Rather, he is just plain cold. He is outright indifferent. He is ungodly, and he's unconcerned about being ungodly. And he doesn't really care. He has his own thoughts about things. And he just wants to be left alone when it comes to talking about spiritual matters. He doesn't want to pretend that he is spiritual. So in that regard, that's a positive. At least he's not pretending. It's interesting, but the Lord, Lord Jesus said in this letter to the Laodiceans that he would rather have someone like this, someone to be, who is freezing cold, than to have a lukewarm type of Laodicean. Now, why do you think that the Lord Jesus would make a statement like that? He says, you know, I would rather that you were cold or hot. I'd rather that you were cold than to be lukewarm. Why would he say such a thing? Well, because a cold person is actually easier to reach than a lukewarm person. Sometimes a cold person can get to the point where he actually feels his coldness. His coldness awaken him, awakens him to feel the chill of his life without Christ. Sometimes he senses that chill of his lost condition and then chooses to move in closer to the source of the fire and who, of course, is the source of the fire? Christ. Now, the, who are the people that are hot? Well, obviously, the hot ones are who? Yes, the true Christians, true believers. The hot ones are the overcomers, and they show their genuine spiritual fervor. They have been redeemed from a cold, dead spiritual condition, and they have received the hot warmth of eternal life. They have been given newness of life by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Salvation 
we could say, is the transformation from cold to hot. You know, we say once we were dead, now now we're alive. We could also say once we were cold, and now we are hot. When a man is freezing from the pain of sin and from his lost condition, and God draws him to himself and redeems him, he immediately goes from being cold to hot because the new birth... In the new birth, we are taken from that cold deadness. When somebody is dead, their body immediately becomes cold. He's taken us from the cold deadness of our spiritual state and given newness of life. And with love, life comes warmth. With life comes heat, body heat. Well, that's who the cold are and the hot are. Who are the lukewarm? Well, they are not believers because all believers, whether they are faithful or not, all believers have had the transformation from coldness to heat, from death to life. These lukewarm church members, I say, are the professing Christians, professing only, not the possessing Christians. They do not, they're not possessed with the Holy Spirit. Um, They have never been born again by placing their trust, their faith in Christ's shed blood and his death for their sins. They play all kinds of religious games, but they have no reality internally. They have heard and they have been touched by the gospel in some way or another, but they have never received Christ with that true saving faith in him. They don't belong to him. You know, they know the truth, but they don't really buy it enough to surrender to it and to abide by it. Christ says that there is more hope for a cold individual who has been touched, untouched by the gospel and makes no religious pretense than for the one who makes the pretense and goes through the external motions of playing at churchianity but has no inward reality. You know, this is Satan's greatest scheme of all, isn't it? His greatest scheme, and he's been most successful with this scheme, too. I mean, he has a lot of tactics, but this is his most successful tactic of all. It's to catch people in the lukewarm, insipid, nauseating environment of external religion and false security and have them think that they're okay, but they're not because they aren't saved. The Laodicean church represents the false warmth of religion which captures people and traps them into thinking they're going to heaven and they are not. Well, what does Christ do about those in this spiritual condition of lukewarmness. Well, he says, as we've looked at already at the end of verse 16, that he's going to spew out the whole disgusting mass of these bad fish. Remember how this parallels the parable of the dragnet? And they cast away the bad fish. He's going to spew out all these bad fish, these tares in judgment. But until the time at the end of the age, the lukewarm apostate church goes on, continues right on in its pride and in its self-deceit and in its self-satisfaction, thinking that it is in need of nothing. And this leads us to the Lord's second accusation against the church of the Laodiceans. He not only said that they were lukewarm, but he said that they were self-deceived. In verse 17, we find... 
that the Laodicean church would say one thing, but the Lord Jesus Christ in his assessment, which is the true assessment, would say something else. She would say, for example, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. That's at the beginning of verse 17. But what does Christ tell her? He tells her that, no, you're not rich. You are wretched and miserable and poor, blind, and naked. You know, the religious person always thinks that he is something that he is not. Notice the contrast, again, between what the Laodiceans sayest and what Christ says they knowest not. They sayest one thing, he says you know it's not something else. Now this should remind us of the many, many times when we did our Life of Christ study when the Lord during his earthly ministry would state what the traditions and the rituals and the teachings of the scribes and Pharisees were. He would state, well, you have heard it said or it has been taught to you. And then he would say, but I say unto you. And then he would state something which was totally contrary to what the religious rulers had taught. So just like the unsaved Jewish religionists, the members of the Laodicean church had a contrasting opinion of themselves from what the Lord's assessment of them was. Well, what was the contrast? First of all, he said, or they said, we're rich. But to the church which prided itself on being located in this great banking center, Christ said, no, you are poor. They also said, we have need of nothing. But Christ said to them, no, you are wretched. And actually, you have need of everything because you have need of me. Because without Christ, nobody can do anything. Without me, ye can do nothing, he had said. This church was totally humanistic in its thinking. And again, that's what the word Laodicea basically means. The people rule, the people speak. It's humanistic. Many so-called Christian churches today, since the 1900s, are really teaching nothing more than humanism, except, you know, they sugarcoat it a little bit by throwing in God's name every now and then in some kind of a biblical term. The humanistic church of today is man deceiving himself into thinking that he can run his own church that he can rule his own church. He has need of nothing, he, and he even has the audacity to pick and choose what he says he will believe about Christianity. He picks and chooses the passages of the scripture that he says he'll believe and then the ones that he says he'll throw out. We have come to that time in Christendom when for most churches sad to say, for most churches, it's easier for them to get on without the Lord Jesus Christ than it is for them to operate with him. After all, he's so narrow-minded and he's so intolerant and he doesn't really appeal in all of his holiness very much. He doesn't appeal to the modern mind and he sets such high standards. I mean, let's be practical now. Who can meet those kind of high standards? And, you know, if we tried to set those kind of high standards, who in the world would ever come to church? Nobody would come to church if such standards were applied and expected of them. You know, that's the thinking. I don't agree with that thinking, but that's the thinking of the 
apostate humanistic church of today. It's easier, they conclude, to carry on their programs and their entertainment shows and or their rituals and their liturgical services without the interference of the Holy Spirit convicting them that there is something missing in what they're doing. But although men can organize and although men can build and although men can preach and men can teach and men can promote, only the spirit of the living God can convict men's souls and only the Holy Spirit can bring them into the kingdom of God. Only he can transform a man's life and make old things new. Only he can glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there was one more contrast that Christ made with regard to his accusation against the Laodicean church concerning their self-deception. They prided themselves on their famous eye salve. And also, remember, they had a school of ophthalmology there in the temple of Asclepios. People from everywhere, we talked about this last week, would come there uh, to Laodicea in the hope of improving their eyesight. Yet Christ, and of course they would probably think that they could see better than anybody in the Roman world because of all the um, eye doctors and medicine that they had at their fingertips. But Christ was telling the Laodicean church that she was blind. And, of course, he was speaking not physically, but he was speaking spiritually. Like the scribes and the Pharisees, again, of Judaism. These people of the lukewarm apostate church thought that they had deep spiritual insight. They thought that they were quite sophisticated in their understanding of spiritual matters. But the truth of the matter is that they were not even born again. And except ye be born again, ye cannot see the kingdom of God. So although this church really thought that she had her act all together, she was miserable. You know, one of Aesop's fables gives us a good illustration of this church. I also thought about how um, Hans Christian Andersen, you remember his story of the emperor's clothing? How that gives us a, a good idea of this, or a good example of this church as well, because the emperor had deceived himself into thinking that he was dressed in great splendor. But the truth of the matter was that he was stark naked, right? So that's an example, too, of this church that thought she was dressed so well and she was really naked. But one of Aesop's fables is about a dog which had a bone in its mouth. And when he came upon a pond and looked down in the pond and saw his own reflection, of course, just being a dog, he thought that that was another dog that he was seeing down there. And that dog had a bone in his mouth. This dog wanted that other dog's bone, so he growled. And as soon as he growled, he opened his mouth, and his own bone, his own bone fell down and sunk into the bottom of the pond. So he wound up with nothing because of his greed. Well, the lukewarm church, the Laodicean church, we could say, possesses the bone. She has all of the promises and the blessings of God which are available to her in his word. But she has looked out into the world, you know, the, we could say the world is the pond, and she's desired what she sees there. 
She wants all of the material riches. She wants all of the fine clothing, the creature comforts, the entertainment, the recreation, the pleasure, the luxury. And just like Aesop's dog, she has dropped the bones of the promises of God in order to go after the bones of the world. And in doing so, she has come away with absolutely nothing. She doesn't have the promises of, the, of God. She's trying to, like a person trying to ride the fence, kind of. She winds up with nothing, not on either side. She's wretched, she's poor, she's blind, naked, and miserable. She may have given herself all kinds of humanistic lessons on positive thinking and self-esteem, which is contradictory to what Scripture teaches, by the way. And she may have produced and read all kinds of books on how to do this and how to do that and how to have joy and love and peace. But inwardly, and the only book on how to have all those things is this book on your lap, but inwardly her people are unhappy. They are wretched. They're miserable. These are the Lord's words, not mine. I mean, he says they're miserable because riches can never, ever satisfy the hungry heart of man. God knows that. Jesus knows that. If you've been there, you know that, right? Nothing can satisfy. Only Jesus satisfies. Dr. John Phillips told of two religious men, one of whom was counting a large sum of money which had been donated to the church. And he turned to the other man and he said, Well, the church can no longer say, Silver and gold have I none. To which the other man responded, that's true, but neither can it say to the lame man, arise and walk. The power is gone. The church of the Laodiceans and the church of the modern day are prosperous. They're proud, they're popular, they're pragmatic, they're polished, but they are also powerless because the source of their power the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are not present. Where was Christ standing in this church? Again, not in this church, but right outside. He's standing on the outside. It's interesting to notice that in verse 17, the word that the Lord used for poor, the Greek word there for poor, is the most extreme word for poor that there is in the Greek language. There are about three different words for poverty in Greek. This is the most extreme one because it means being poor to the point of beggary. Now, I, again, I do not believe that the Lord Jesus Christ would ever use such a term about those who belong to him when, he, when he's talking about their spiritual condition. I don't think he would ever call a true Christian poor to the point of beggary regarding their spiritual condition. You know, this is ironic that this church, which was located in the leading banking center of all of Asia Minor, and remember that how it was located in that resort retirement area as well, because it was close to the hot springs of Hierapolis. It's ironic that, that this church, which was probably attended by more wealthy citizens than any other church in the, all of Asia Minor, that... This was the church that Christ said was poor to the point of beggary. And, of course, he's talking about their spiritual condition. Now, there was a church that was literally poor to the point of beggary. But the Lord Jesus called them rich. Do you remember which church that was? The persecuted church, the church at Smyrna. 
Well, there is more contrast between their self-deceived opinions of themselves and Christ's faithful and true assessment of them. They prided themselves on their fashion. This was, again, another fashion center in that day because of that unique, luxurious black wool which they produced. So they prided themselves. They were probably some of the best-dressed people that went to church that you could find in first century Asia Minor. But Christ told them that they were like the emperor in his clothing. He told them that they were naked. They were missing the only garment which actually can cover, and that is the white cloak of righteousness. Remember the first thing that Adam and Eve realized after they sinned was that they were, what? That they were naked. A man or a woman without Christ is not covered. They are naked. They stand naked before God because they're not covered with Christ's cloak of righteousness. And therefore, regardless of how fashionable they might be in their self-made outer garments, they stand stark naked before God. Well, the Lord's last three accusations against the Laodicean church, her poverty, her blindness, and her nakedness, um, become the basis, really, for his advice to her in verses 18 to 20. So let's reread verses 18 to 20. He said, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eyesalve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. And then this one verse that probably everybody has memorized. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. Now, in these verses, the Lord counseled this church to do five things. First of all, he told her to buy from him gold tried in the fire, secondly, to buy from him white raiment, thirdly, to anoint her eyes with eye salve so that she could see, fourth, to be zealous and repent, fifth, to open the door to him. Now, all five of these things, if you look at them up here and think about it, all five of these things are part of the salvation experience. And again, This indicates to us, in yet another way, that this was not a born-again church. Laodicea, I say, represents the unsaved church because the Lord would not counsel her to do the five things that we find in these three verses if she was already a saved church. Because, as I said, these are all part of the salvation experience. Furthermore, when it comes to dealing with his own, you know, those who are Christians, the Lord Jesus gives commands. For example, to the Ephesian church, he gave the command, remember, therefore, from where thou art fallen, and repent and do the first works. Those are commandments. To the Smyrna church, he also gave a command. He said, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. To Pergamos, he had said, repent. And in each one of the previous six churches, Christ gave commands. But in his letter to the Laodiceans, he gives counsel. Look at the beginning of verse 18. What does he say? I counsel thee. The Lord commands his own, but he counsels the lost. He advises the lost. 
Now, the first thing that he counseled the Laodiceans to do was to buy from him gold tried in fire so that they might truly be rich. This church, as we've seen, thought that she was rich, thought that she was in need of nothing. However, her riches merely consisted of the gold of this present world, the riches of this present world. And the treasures of this world are temporary, aren't they? Because they're corruptible. One day they're going to rust, fade, the moths will get them. And if they survive all of those things, we know, because we know the end from the beginning because God gave it to us here. I mean, you know, written revelation, we don't know like God knows. But we do know that one day everything on this planet except eternal souls and the eternal word of God will be destroyed by fire. Everything one day will burn up. So the Lord's advice to the Laodicean church members was to not worry about the treasures of this world, but to buy from him gold, which is tried in fire. And this gold is the gold of divine righteousness, which stands every test and every fire and never decreases in its value. Gold of this kind comes only from the Lord Jesus. And he was speaking here, of course, of eternal riches, which are not appropriated by material possessions, but by his precious shed blood. These riches are only available by faith in him. But how, we might ask, how can a church which the Lord Jesus Christ has just declared to be poor to the point of poverty and says that she's miserable and blind and naked, how can this church buy, B-U-Y, purchase anything? And how, we might also ask, can anyone buy eternal riches? How can anyone buy salvation? How can anyone buy Christ's righteousness? And the answer is that the church of the Laodiceans couldn't buy these things because no one can buy Christ's righteousness. No one can buy their salvation. I don't care how many indulgences you purchase. No one can buy salvation. Faith alone can gain these things. You know, the Bible really has quite a bit to say, particularly in the Old Testament, about buying things, purchasing things without money, and without price. Isaiah 55, 1 tells us, it says this, Ho, I always like that, ho, H-O, it's like Santa Claus, ho, that gets your attention, ho, everyone that thirsteth come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Buying without money and buying without price speaks of God's amazing grace because God freely gives salvation. You really just buy it with your faith. That's the only way you can gain these things. He freely gives divine righteousness to anyone who is merely willing to receive it on the simple basis of their trust in Christ. Now, the Lord also counseled the Laodiceans to buy something else, to buy white raiment. They were so proud of their black but he said, no, you're naked. You need some white raiment that you might be clothed and not be ashamed of your nakedness. See, he could see right through that black clothing, couldn't he? The darkest you could get, and he could see right through it. Now, we can be sure that the members of this church were very, very proud of their fashion. 
But he told them that all of their finery, no matter how exotic, no matter where they got it from, if they got it from Saks Fifth Avenue, it didn't matter. They were still in moral nakedness. They were they were open before the God who sees all. All of their works of righteousness apart from faith in Christ were just as filthy rags to God. Man needs the white raiment, the white covering of divine righteousness, which God gives freely again to everyone who believes on his son. Now, he also advised the Laodicean church to anoint their eyes with eyesab that they might see. And again, he was telling her that in spite of her famous solarium eye salve, that eye powder that she crushed and mixed with water, and despite her, in spite of her school of ophthalmology, she was blind to her true spiritual condition. She needed eye salve, which only, again, Christ can provide. For only the truth of his person and his word brings light, opening the spiritual eyes of a person by way of the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. What was Christ really saying in verse 18 by way of his three counsels where he says, Buy gold, buy my gold, buy my white raiment, and anoint your eyes with my eyes. What's he really saying? Well, he's really saying, Come unto me. Come unto me. This was the lost liberal apostate church to whom he was speaking because he would not advise those who already belonged to him to buy what they already had or to see what they already could see. He doesn't call his own poor because they possess all the spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And he doesn't call his own naked because if they are his, they are already covered in his garments of salvation and his robe of righteousness. And neither does he call his own blind because their eyes of understanding have been already enlightened by the truth. And the truth is Christ. He is the truth. And also by the light of the world. And he is the light of the world, John 8, 12. Well, the amazing thing is that Christ still loves this church. If you look at um, verse 19, he says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Now, some might see this verse and immediately say, Well, if Christ loves the Laodicean church, then certainly it must be a saved church. These must be Christians. Well, the answer to that is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe on him would not perish. God loved the world, but that doesn't mean that the world was saved. Furthermore, the Greek word which is used here, and you might want to make a note if you write on your Bible, the Greek word used for love in this verse is not agape, which speaks of God's divine unconditional love, the love he has for those who belong to him. Agape is the word that is used in Hebrews 12.6 where it says, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. There the word is agape, for love. But the word used in Revelation 3.19 is the word phileo, which we've heard of, you know, the church of the Philadelphians. It speaks of human love, a love which is less 
than divine and less than unconditional. So to purposely show that he was speaking to unbelievers, the Lord used a different word for love than he uses when he is talking about his relationship to believers. You know, we know that he phileo loved these church members because otherwise he would not even have bothered to send a letter to them in the first place and he wouldn't have bothered to appeal to them and counsel them with good advice that they needed in order to be saved. If he had not phileo loved them, he would not have tried to get them to understand that their only hope was to repent from their lukewarm apostate condition, which so displeased him that it would cause him to spew them out of his mouth. He was advising them, therefore, that they must get hot. They must get zealous by coming to the fire, which, of course, again, is only found in him. In other words, that they must have a personal saving relationship with him. They needed to repent of their sins, and they needed to turn to him and get zealously hot. For him. You see, we also know that the Lord Phileo loved this church enough to be standing at its door and appeal to any man who would hear his knock and allow him access into his life. There was still time. There's still hope for the individuals within this church to listen to his knocking and to hear his voice calling and to open up the door to their own heart in order to let him in. In fact, there was still time for the, the, um, the church, the first century Laodicean church, not just for the individuals, but for the church to have repented of her sin of lukewarmness and to turn to Christ in faith. You know, he had not yet spit her out of his mouth. Remember, he said in verse 16, I will, but he hadn't yet. He hadn't yet spewed her out of his mouth. She had been rebuked and she had been counseled as to what she needed. And if she would have turned to him in faith, he would have come into her and he would have supped or fellowshiped with her. You know, even still today, the Lord has not returned in the rapture. I know, because I wouldn't be here. He has not returned. And, of course, that's the time when he will spew out the apostate churches and the apostate um, so-called Christians. So it's not too late even today for these type of churches and church members to repent and to turn to him in saving faith. He, his appeal here is to any man. And so what we have here in verse 20 is a picture of the divine, infinite, long-suffering, and patience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 20 has been described by one man as the simplest explanation of the plan of salvation, salvation encompassed in so brief a statement within the lids of God's word. Now, some might say that it's John 3.16, but this one, this one I know is a favorite of mine. It's the verse that my son was saved with, reading that verse. And he asked me, he's, it really spoke to him. And he said, does that mean Jesus is knocking at my door? And he wanted me to explain it to him. And that was when he got saved from that verse. So we have a plaque in his room with that verse on it. It's a powerful verse, and you should memorize it if you don't know it to use in salvation, in, in witnessing to someone. I remember one time, I'm going to get off the t- track, track here, but one time when I was um, taking my children to school years ago, there was a black woman who her car had 
had broken down and she was carrying a big crowbar. Do you remember some of you that were here remember me telling this story? She was carrying, she was a big woman and she was carrying a crowbar and um, I saw that she had a need for a lift and I stopped and gave her a lift and um, I really hadn't wanted to see anybody that day. Peggy will remember this story because that was the day I was wearing pink slippers and I had curlers in my hair and I was hoping I could get to school and back without anybody seeing me. But she was in distress and she also had slippers on her feet and she had taken her child to school. Well, she got in the car and she was so miserable because she had the flu and I felt so sorry for her. And um, Anyway, to make a long story short, when I did get her to her house, I I asked her if she was a Christian, and she said, I knew you was a saved woman. It was so funny. And um, I asked her if she was, and she said no. And so we had a nice little talk. But I'll, I'll never forget when I was giving her some v- verses, I got to Revelation 3.20, this verse right here. And I started, and I said, Behold, I stand at the door. And I told her, I said, This is Jesus Christ speaking, and he's standing at the door of your heart. And he says that he's knocking, and if you, and I gave her name, I said, If you will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in too. And I gave her name again. And this woman scared the life out of me because she just grabbed me. And she started crying and crying and just just holding on to me. And she had that crowbar. You know, I was a little nervous. But that verse just penetrated her heart, and she couldn't. She just kept saying, "Thank you, Jesus. I see it. I see it. I see." Just and she got saved, gloriously saved that morning. That was the power of God's word. That verse right there. So that's a special verse. The simplest explanation of the plan of salvation encompassed in so brief a statement within the lids of God's word. So memorize it. He speaks of himself as standing at the door knocking. And the Greek word for knock there is given in the present tense. And you know what that means? It means he is continually, continually knocking. Furthermore, the appeal to any man who might hear his voice uses the Greek word tis, T-I-S, tis. And that can be used for any man or any woman because it's both masculine and feminine, which is unusual. But it is. So the invitation is for anyone at all. Man, woman, boy, girl. He knocks on the outside of the liberal church door and the apostate church door. But his appeal really is to the individual. You know, although the leadership of many churches today have denied so many of the foundational basic doctrines of Christianity that their doctrine is no longer Christian at all. You know, they call themselves Christian, but it isn't. Yet, the Lord stands outside those churches, continually knocking, seeking entrance into the individual's hearts. We're told in John 1, 11 to 12, he came unto his own, and his own received him not, but as many as received him. See, that's what so many people fail to understand. You cannot just have a head knowledge. You cannot just know the facts about Christ. You need to receive him. You need to open the door to your heart and invite him to come in. He's a gentleman. He won't ever barge in on anybody. He doesn't want automatic robots that are forced to love him. He wants you to invite him in. So the doorknob is on the inside. We have to open the door. He said, to as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Now, it's incredible if you think about the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ dwells in the highest heaven. 
He's on the throne of heaven. And yet he still seeks entrance into men's hearts. I mean, that is incredible. He could be content and happy just to stay up there in heaven and not to worry about trying to get into our hearts. It's a blessed wonder to hear him say those words, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And as I said, he will never, ever force himself in. When someone hears the knock, you know, he'll plead persistently for the unbeliever to open up, but that one has to do the opening. You know, how does he knock? Well, he knocks through circumstances. You know, in an individual's life, he may knock by um, having some kind of circumstance to get their attention turned around to him and to get their priorities, priorities such that they will seek first the kingdom of God. And he knocks through, of course, his word, as I just gave the example with my son and that woman. He takes, um, also he takes the initiative in knocking. We love him because he first loved us. God always takes the initiative. He is the one who is seeking the continual abiding fellowship of the one upon whose heart's door he is knocking. God always, always is the one who reaches out to man first. But then it becomes the individual's part, man's part, to respond to God's appeal. Now, the individual must answer the knock. He must respond by opening the door and by welcoming Christ into his house, we could call it, or his life. And then once the individual has opened the door to the Lord Jesus, the promise is definite. You know, like I said with that woman, he will, not he might come in, he will come in and he will sup. Means, that means he will have abiding fellowship with that person. Now, many people have felt the genuine knock of the Lord at the door of their heart as they have perhaps been reading some portion of the scripture. Other times the Lord's knocking has been evidenced by an individual's violent or even verbal reaction and rejection. You know, they might respond with just in a horrible way. They might curse or whatever. But that doesn't minimize the fact that the Lord has knocked. They just have rejected. They've slammed closed that door. But he has attempted to knock. Now, prophetically, Christ's knocking at the door indicates to us how close his arrival is once history has arrived at the Laodicean stage of apostasy. He is knocking, you see, to show that his arrival at the rapture is at the very door. Now, the word sup in verse 20 is the Greek word zipnon, and it referred to the last meal of the day, the meal right before night came. The Greeks and people back in those days ate very late. They didn't eat like we do 5.30, 6.30. They ate very late, right, you know, before they went to bed, which wasn't good for their stomachs, but... In the, and also in the Near East, the sharing of an evening meal with someone denoted a very strong bond of companionship and intimacy with, those, with the ones that were eating, the one you would invite to dinner with you. That showed you had a very close relationship. To the Laodicean church then of our day, Christ is saying there is still time before night comes. It's not too late yet. I'm still knocking and you can still open and I can still get in 
in time for dinner. The next event, however, will be the rapture of all true believers, all those who have opened up the doors of their hearts to Christ. And once that event has occurred, then the terrible dark night of the tribulation will cover the world. It will devour the world, and it will be too late to avoid the darkness of the night. Well, let me get on real quickly. I've got five minutes here to his award. Do you know what happens when you do let the Lord Jesus Christ in and when you sup with him and when he sups with you? You know what happens according to verse 21 here? You go from the supper room to the throne room because he says here one of the promises to the overcomer is that you will reign with him. You will rise in the dawn of the new day, which will be the millennial kingdom, and you will sit on the throne with him. Remember, we've been promised that we'll have power over the nations, that we will rule with Christ. The throne right... The right to the throne belongs to the firstborn, and Jesus Christ is the firstborn. Now, because the true believer or the overcomer is a joint heir with Christ, who overcame the world and Satan on the believer's part, then the believer will inherit the throne with Christ. Those who are faithful and true, as he is faithful and true, as he told these people, they will rule with him. Now, because Christ was victorious and because the overcomer has faith in Christ's victory, then the overcomer is also victorious. There are so many wonderful, almost unthinkable awards which have been promised to us as overcomers. I hope that you are an overcomer. I hope that you have truly opened the door to Christ's knocking and that you are saved, that you are born again. But if when we think back on all the wonderful awards that have been promised to us, I mean, we have so much to, to enjoy in this life as Christians, to enjoy the abundant life, but he has given us so much to look forward to as well in the future life. You know, eyes have not seen, ears haven't heard the things which he has prepared for us. But what we know, what we've learned from these seven churches, is that he's promised us we'll eat of the tree of life. Remember, that was the first one. That we'll be spared the second death. That we will eat of hidden manna. That we will receive a white stone. And what will be in that white stone? Right, our new name that Christ will give to us. And we've been promised that we will have power over the nations. And that we will be clothed in white raiment. That we will have our names securely written in the book of life. And that we will have His our name confessed by him, by Christ, before his Father, and all of the holy angels. And then we've been promised that we will be a pillar in the temple of God and that we will have eternal security in heaven. Remember, we will no more go out. And that we will receive upon us the name of God himself and then the name of our new residence, the name of the new Jerusalem, and also the new name of Christ, which we don't know yet. And then we have been promised here that we will be seated with Christ upon his very throne. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Those are some wonderful, fantastic promises. It's a whole lot to look forward to. So I truly do hope that as we have studied these seven Revelation church letters, we have had ears. Whoops. Here we are. Here's Christ's throne. I have forgotten to put these up here. Here's, i got to get our ears out here. That we have had ears 
had to give you that picture one last time, that we've had ears to hear what the Spirit says to us. And that, of course, is the appeal that, that he gives. It's the seventh time in verse 22, the seventh time that the Lord has given the identical appeal. And for him to repeat the same thing seven times emphasizes its extreme importance. You know, these are the last words that Christ had to say to Christians, to his church. So he really, really wants us to hear what he has said. And I'm glad, I repeat, I'm glad we've spent a whole year hearing these last words that he had to say to the church. These letters have been the Lord's x-rays, his x-rays of the various types of churches, and they are his x-rays of individual Christians, and they are his x-rays also of church history. They have been given to us in order that we might examine our own lives and also our ministries, as well as examine our own local churches. You know, judgment is definitely going to come to this world. And apparently, according to what's going on in the world, it's coming very soon. This is what we will be looking at when we come back in the fall and we go into next year's study. But judgment comes first to the house of God. Judgment begins in the house of God. 1 Peter 4.17. Therefore, I pray, my prayer has been all year, that the Lord has helped each one of us through this study to be able to truly, truly hear with open ears what the Spirit has had to say to us individually and also corporately as members of his present-day church. Now, by the way, this is the last mention In the book of Revelation, until we come to the very last chapter, this is the last mention of the church. There's no mention of churches on earth from chapter 4 all the way to uh, chapter uh, 22 as we go through all the traumatic events of the judgments that we'll be seeing and talking about. And again, this is a strong argument for a pre-tribulation rapture. And so... On that note, I will say to you that if the Lord doesn't come for us over the summer months, this is where we are going to pick up upon our return in September as we are going to discuss when you return all the biblical supports for a pre-tribulation rapture.